Hi, I'm Shelly. And I'm Nicole. And you're listening to the Baby Pro Podcast, where we talk about everything and anything related to pregnancy through the first year of your child's life. Every episode, we will discuss and interview experts on all the questions expectant and new parents want to know, such as creating the perfect birth plan, infant sleep, and tips and tricks for parenting a newborn. Welcome to the show. Hi, Nicole. Hey there, Shelly. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. I know you've been really busy. Yes, I have been. How about you? Same. Yeah. But we just got that big I, snowstorm. I know, which has been keeping us busy. How many inches did you get? Because you always get a little bit more than me. I don't know. It was hard to tell because of the huge drift. Right. It was just too drifty to tell. But my guess is we got, I don't know, a foot and a half. I don't know. Maybe no more, more. Please. I'm so, I'm like, I'm not a winter person. I'm not either. So this week we are speaking with Melina from Healthy Moms, Healthy Kids. And she's going to talk to us all about starting solid foods. Oh, good. But first, let's do our favorites of the week. All righty. You want to go first? Sure. I was thinking about this and my favorite this week is just something that's personal to me, which is my collection of bracelets. I wear bangles on my wrist, silver, and I have worn them for many years. And I cannot tell you the babies who tease on these bracelets um, a lot. And they're very meaningful to me. Um, I've got some that I bought with my daughters where we bought matching ones down the Cape, Cape Cod. We're here in Massachusetts. I've got some who were given to me. I lost a friend suddenly just about 15 years ago. And one of her family members who I'm also close to was leaving her some of her silver bangles and gave them to me the first Mother's Day after she had passed. Mm. As a gift. So they're very meaningful. I never take them off <laughs> like ever. So, and they're uh, beautiful. I love your bracelets. Thank you. Funny, I had gone to the Cape last summer with my girls and I mm-hmm. always wear them. And I had a share bed with my older daughter who's in her 20s. And she, the next morning was like, I can't share a bed with you unless you take those off. <laughs> <laughs> I apparently, every time I move, they, make this sound yeah and um, I'm just used to it I don't think about it it was very funny your bracelets sound like your version of my tattoos oh yeah like I have a story and meaning behind every tattoo yeah some were given to me yeah and you know I can't take them off so they're gonna (laughs) right I love it yeah yeah they're personal well, I will tell you my favorite of the week if you promise not to laugh. Oh, who am I kidding? Go of course, it. you're going to laugh. That's why. Of course, <laughs> I am. I love to laugh. Okay. Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, my God. I love you. <laughs> this is why we are friends. We are so opposite and so much alike. It's like the mm-hmm. most. I love it. You're kidding me. Yeah. So my sister and her boyfriend are very much into Dungeons and Dragons, among other things. And they keep talking about it. And then finally they invited me to play. Yeah. And I'm trying this whole like 
balance between work and life. So I figured that could be part of me getting a life. Um, they only meet once a month, but yeah, I went to my first one and I didn't, I had never played Dungeons and Dragons. I didn't really research it. I bought the handbook and never opened it before I went. So I really had no clue what to expect. And it was a lot more fun than I thought. Really? Yeah. Like if you like imagination and you like storytelling and improv, then you would like this game. Yeah. But I didn't realize it was so much like role play. I had no idea. I have no idea really about it. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. I have something to do. Like I like having something that I look forward to doing. Mm -hmm. So is it like that? Like you're like, can't wait to play. Yeah. Right. Cause like we, it's like this long story. So when you're done playing, you just stop the story and then everything remains frozen until you come back. So it's not like a new game every time you get together. Yeah. Which makes it really interesting because, you know, when you're reading a good book and you have to stop at a good part. Yes. (laughs) And then you're like, come on, I just want to sit down and read. I don't want to work right now. That's kind of like what it's like. Right. Mm -hmm. Very good. Thanks. Good for you. Thanks for not laughing too hard at me. I did not. (laughs) I just laugh at how opposite we are. (laughs) I'm like, nah, I'm going to make an apple pie. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I'm like, don't make me step foot in the kitchen, please. <laughs> I love it. Our friendship in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's move on to our question of the week. Okay. So this week's question came in again through Instagram. And this mom wants to know, you know, what can I do when I'm sick and breastfeeding? Oh. So I would say keep breastfeeding your baby. Yep. Um, cause you want the baby to get the immune properties in your breast milk. And honestly, if you are sick and showing symptoms, your baby's already been exposed. This includes if you have COVID just wear a mask when you're breastfeeding your baby, if you have COVID and that is pretty much for any type of illness, flu, colds, it's very rare that you would have a situation where a mom can't breastfeed her baby. Like active right. tuberculosis is one of the few cases, for example, right. Right. And then you want to be careful of medications because some medications can drop your milk supply sometimes permanently. So anything that contains um, pseudoephedrine, I always say that wrong or something in like pseudofed. Yeah. Yeah. Pseudofed. <laughs> or other decongestants. Right. So be mindful of that. And then if you have, don't treat symptoms that you don't have. So if you only have a cough, don't buy like right. cough and cold or anything like right. that. Just, right. Just treat the symptoms you have. Try to avoid the combo drugs. Right. And of course, rest and hydration. Right. Like the antihistamine family mm-hmm. of medications are drying. So think about your, you know, your breast, the milk is mm-hmm. not dry. So yeah, any antihistamine can be a problem if you're continuing it. Right. And there are lots of parents who take Sudafed once sick and their supply is fine, but right. there are a lot of parents. I had a family that I was working with and this family had like worked so hard to get breastfeeding where they want it to be. And she got sick and took one dose of Sudafed and her milk was gone. Wow. wow so wow. for some parents, you can, you can have such a strong reaction Yeah, and it's usually not reversible. Mm, good to know. That was a good question. Good time for it. No kidding. I know. And next up, we'll be talking with Melina. Very good.
This week's guest is Melina Malkani. She is a pediatric nutritionist who specializes in babies and young children and author of the book, Safe and Simple Baby-Led Weaning. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Yep. Again, my name is Melina Malkani and I have a website that is my name, melinamalkani.com. I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist and I specialize in nutrition for moms, babies, and kids. And my favorite part of the whole process of nutrition is starting solids. Um, I think it's just such a joyful and hopeful time and a really fun part of parenting. So I focus on that a lot in my private practice and I have courses and an Instagram. My Instagram is healthy.mom.healthy.kids. And I have a really lovely community there of parents supporting parents and kind of muddling through this really challenging part of parenting, which is feeding kids. It's such a presents with a lot of different sort of challenges along the way that I love to help parents with. So Mm -hmm. that's my passion. (laughs) And I absolutely love your Instagram account. I go there all the time. Um, as a lactation consultant, I get a lot of questions about starting solids and I know pretty much all the basics, but when you go to your page, it's almost like, I wish I had another baby just so I could start solids again. You make it look so fun (laughs) and you post like the cutest recipes. I'm like, Oh my gosh. That's so nice to hear. I can't even tell you how much that means to me because I, I think this process one of the things that struck me and the reason why I wrote my book and one of the, one of the reasons why I wrote simple and safe baby led weaning is that there is so much stress and fear around the process of starting solids and, and parental stress around what to feed and when to feed and how to, you know, balance milk and solid foods and what to do about gagging and choking and allergen, you know, the potential for a reaction to a top allergenic food. And, and I think the process, you know, when we sort of take it apart and look at it, it doesn't have to be that way. And that's, so that's always my hope mm-hmm. with my content and with working with parents one-on-one in my courses is just to reduce and take away as much of that stress as I can, because food, this is something that we're laying the foundation for a, a relationship with food from those very first few bites. So we want it to be positive and we want it to be a happy thing that can connect families as opposed to like cause stress and worry throughout. So, so mm-hmm. thank you for that. Oh, sure. <laughs> I think part of the scary thing about starting solids is there's so much conflicting information out there on when your baby's ready for solids, what you should first feed them. Some of it's really old information that's still floating around out there. And of course you have like grandmas and aunties who are suggesting old information to, to new parents that we now know isn't necessarily the best thing. So I was wondering what your thoughts are on when to introduce solids. Such a great question. And you're right. You know, even just Googling it or talking to different people, you're going to get so many different answers and opinions to this question. So as a dietitian, I always like to turn first to the evidence and look at what, what do the governing, what are the, what are the majority of health organizations say now in response to a body of evidence that's grown a lot in the last couple of decades, we didn't used to have as much research as we do now about infant feeding. And so as a result, the guidelines have changed dramatically, which can be so confusing for parents and even for healthcare professionals, because that, you know, that new research doesn't always trickle down quickly. Mm -hmm. So at this point, the majority of health organizations, the AAP, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, the World Health Organization, they recommend that the best time to start solids, and this is confusing too, is around six months, 
when a baby is showing the signs, the developmental signs of readiness for solid foods. And this can it come a couple of weeks before six, like it doesn't mean we start right on the six month birthday. That's what I think can be confusing for a lot of parents because you got to really look for those developmental signs because that's also what's going to help set up the baby to have a successful first introduction to food and for them to be ready for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I remember with my first, I had learned six months. So the day that she turned six months old, I was like, great, we can start. And I <laughs> mashed up some banana and fed it to her. And she was like, what? <laughs> it did not go very well. And I know exactly. with my second and my third, I waited longer until by then I knew about some of the physical signs of being ready. Yeah. And I, and what's so cool about infants at this stage too, is even waiting one week can make such an enormous difference in their developmental readiness because they're developing so rapidly. You know, you'll go from even, even day to day. My cousins were here the other day and they had their little infant. He was just, he was like five months and, um, and three weeks. And he was within a day, suddenly bringing food, grasping larger objects and, and foods and bringing them up to the mouth. And my cousin was saying like yesterday, he wasn't doing this. <laughs> so these developmental signs can just show up so, so quickly during this period. It's really exciting mm-hmm. to watch. Yeah. And the same thing can happen with breastfeeding. Like your baby could be really yeah. struggling one week and then with a little help and a little support, all of a sudden the next week they're like a pro. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. I think part of what's adding to the confusion around when to start is that there are exceptions to this, you know, six month being around six months being the best time. And one of those exceptions are, are babies that are at severe or high risk for food allergies um, because allergists have found and the, and the growing body of research has found that it's particularly for those high risk babies offering top allergenic foods, particularly peanut and egg between four and six months can help reduce the likelihood that they'll develop an allergy to those foods. So for those babies, you know, it, it can be under the guidance of an allergist and or a pediatrician, it can be advantageous to start a little bit earlier. So that can be confusing too, for some folks who are like, I'm hearing different things from different mm-hmm. professionals, but it just, it, it also speaks to the importance of assessing each individual baby and their entire clinical picture and their developmental signs of readiness, whether they were born prematurely, all these different things to consider. Mm-hmm. Yes. 100%. You talk a lot yeah. about like baby led weaning. Yeah. Obviously. And you wrote a book on it. <laughs> yeah. What? So what are the signs that a baby is ready, the physical signs, and what yeah. is baby led meaning for someone who might not have heard about it? Yeah. So signs of developmental readiness for solids include, like I mentioned before, grabbing, being able to grab larger objects, bring them up to the mouth, good head and neck control. So not, you know, they, they bobble a little bit when their head and neck control is still developing. So good head and neck control, the capacity of the ability to sit upright with minimal assistance. And this ends up causing confusion too, because some people will say, they'll message me and be like, my baby can, you know, can't sit upright for long periods of time, but like, that's okay. We don't expect them to sit for hours, you know, a little bit of minimal assistance, maybe like a, a little pillow at the back in the high chair or, or something to prevent them from slumping over to the side, like a rolled up dish towel or something. That's fine. The point is we want them to have the trunk stability to be able to sit upright 
-hmm. because when they start to lean back or to slump, that's when we start to run the risk that gravity is going to work against you in terms of pulling food toward the back of the throat and increasing choking risk. So another sign of developmental readiness is interest in food. And I think that can look different from baby to baby. Some babies are like lunging across your lap to grab (laughs) your, you know, your fork. And some babies are just are a little bit more reserved and they sort of track, track your food with their eyes. And then the last one is a, a diminishing or a sort of fading of the tongue thrust reflex. It doesn't have to be gone. That's a bit of a myth and a misconception that it should be gone completely but that it starts to fade is a helpful sign of developmental readiness. Great. Yeah. Usually if a baby's showing all those physical signs of being ready, you don't necessarily have to start out with the jarred purees or anything. You can start out with baby led weeding. Absolutely. It's so it's a method of starting solids that involves offering baby finger foods from the family table for self feeding. So it's a little different from your more traditional passive spoon feeding, where you're spoon feeding the baby purees, the baby's actually feeding him or herself. And so it's a little bit jarring to to people sometimes because they're so used to sort of the decades of traditional passive spoon feeding that have been the cultural norm. But some families take a combined approach and do a little bit of both. And that works too. And so is something like baby led weaning, is that only appropriate if they're hitting those physical milestones that we talked about? Yeah. Well, so the the physical milestones that we were talking about, those make the process of starting solids that much more successful, or they make it more likely that it will be a successful sort of journey. There are some babies that it is recommended that they start solids a little bit earlier than six months. And there can be a variety of different reasons for that. For example, one of them is if you have a baby who's at high risk for food allergies, and if they're being followed closely by an allergist and a pediatrician, it might be advantageous for them to be exposed orally to foods like peanut and egg, even earlier than six months. So between four and six months, Mm -hmm. but the majority of babies aren't quite developmentally ready to self-feed finger foods that early. So for a baby like that, the, you know, more passive spoon feeding of a puree that's say mixed with peanut powder or a little bit of thinned peanut butter is a better way to go. Right. So it depends on the baby. Yeah. And I get that question a lot too. Like what about allergies? Because it keeps changing. The guidelines keep changing. And I feel like I can't even keep up with I know it's so confusing. I know. And it's, and it's already kind of a a time of life when everything is fraught with second guessing and overwhelm Mm -hmm. and just feeling like there's information coming from so many different areas, some of which may be misinformation or outdated. And so it, it is, it's hard, especially too, if you say are living with or um, caring for your baby along with someone, say a parent or an aunt or someone who fed babies. The last time they fed babies was, you know, years ago, decades ago, where Mm -hmm. the guidelines and recommendations were like completely different than they are now with regard to when to introduce the top allergenic foods. It can be really stressful. (laughs) Um, So I try to message in my Instagram and in my blogs and everything as much as I can reflect some of the latest guidelines and the latest guidance around introducing top allergens to make it less scary. It doesn't have to be scary. I think it's interesting that the the sort of the top the top nine allergens that are responsible for about ninety percent of all food allergies are nutrient dense, kind of minimally processed 
really nutritious foods that we eat, you know, on a regular basis. So like, let's just take the scary out of it and, and kind of normalize introducing these foods earlier during infancy, which is really different from what the recommendation used to be, which was to introduce them, you know, after the first, second, even third year of life. Mm-hmm. So do you think if, if a parent is like especially concerned about allergies that they should automatically see an allergist for their baby, if there's like a really strong family history? So it's so interesting that, so the strongest risk factor for the development of food allergies is um, severe eczema in babies. Oh. So yeah, it's really interesting, severe and moderate eczema. Those are the strongest risk factors. A family history of food allergies in a first degree relative is also a risk factor, but not to the same degree as eczema. So I love telling families, like start the conversations with your pediatrician early, early on during infancy, watch your baby's skin, have the conversations with your doctor about their level of risk for food allergies. And if that level of risk is high, then yes, it might be, you you know, talk to your pediatrician, the pediatrician will guide whether meeting with an allergist and having an allergist guide the uh, introduction of top allergenic foods is warranted, um, or whether you can do it with the pediatrician. Um, But have those conversations early, because if your baby is at high risk, it's those babies that are at high risk, who stand to benefit the most from the earlier introduction of top allergens. And this comes from particularly a study called the LEAP study. They're learning early about peanut study in 2015 that was looking at high-risk babies and what happens if we, if and when we introduce peanut even earlier, like between four and six months of age. And, and the reduction in risk of peanut allergy in this, in these babies was like 86%. Wow. Less likely. Yeah. Wow. To develop a peanut allergy. So it's very real. It works. It really does work to lower the risk, but only during a short and pretty critical window of time in infancy. So we want to grab those opportunities by having those conversations early with the doctor. I'm, I'm so can. glad that you brought that up because I mean, that is amazing. Isn't that every time I, I quote that study, it like, it's mind blowing to mm-hmm. me because that's so effective. Now that's peanut. We don't have as robust a body of scientific evidence for other foods. Egg is getting pretty close. We have some, some really good data on eggs. We have a lot on milk. The emphasis really is on getting peanut and egg and also milk to a lesser extent, milk, cow's milk protein into the baby's diet early. The rest of the allergens, you know, we want to get those in before the first year as well, but the real push is for those three peanut, egg, and milk. Great. Can you talk a little bit about appropriate serving sizes? Because that is another question that I tend to get a lot, especially if you are spoon feeding pureed foods. Yeah, I get this question a lot as well. And it, it's actually um, one of the reasons why I love baby led weaning so much is that when you're letting a baby self feed, the, the sort of the process of allowing a baby to internally self regulate their intake is built into the process of baby led weaning. And I love that because I started my work as a dietitian in weight management at a VA hospital in the Bronx. I loved the work that I did there and loved working with the veterans. And I was struck very frequently by how much people into adulthood 
struggled with the ability to recognize their own cues for hunger and fullness. So to eat in response to hunger and to stop eating in response to fullness. And so baby led weaning builds that strengthening of that internal self-regulation system into the baby from the very first few bites of food. And the funny thing is with babies and kids too, is, is when we allow them the opportunity to eat until they're full and stop what we know, stop when they're full on a regular basis there. And, and when we're offering them, you know, a, a variety of nutritious foods throughout the day, they're incredible at meeting their needs and deciding what is the appropriate portion size for themselves mm-hmm. much better than we are. They know so much better than we are. So the, all that prefacing to say, you don't really need to know, <laughs> you don't really need to worry about portion sizes. That being said, it's sort of reasonable to expect that a baby or that a child will eat around or will be able to tolerate around one tablespoon of each food offered per year of age. So if you need like a back of the envelope sort of idea about where to start, you could start with about a tablespoon of each of the foods that you're offering at that meal. And then if the baby wants more, it's fine to offer more their appetites will fluctuate just like ours do. They fluctuate in response to our activity levels and the weather and, you know, what we ate the day before and all these these different factors that really do play into appetite. So I think the better we can just follow their cues and feed them responsibly. If you do that, you don't really need to know what an appropriate portion size is. I love that. And that can can continue even into like toddlerhood and like the whole, the old rules, like you have to clean your plate and all that. And yeah, my my husband grew up with those rules. (laughs) So many of us did. It really, it's true. And it it Mm -hmm. really does. It affects and influences our capacity and our ability to read our own cues and to recognize them Mm -hmm. and to self-regulate in that way and be taking in an appropriate amount of energy of calories and nutrients that fits what our body needs. Our bodies are really smart. At the end of the day, they they kind of know, but we just have to be able to listen to them. So I love that. You're right. You just can strengthen that from, from infancy. And babies are really smart too. And I think that is something that our culture just, we underestimate babies and what they can do. Totally. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And that even goes with milk feeding. And then, like you said, with feeding into toddlerhood and school age children, that rhythm of providing a balanced meal at regular intervals throughout the day, when we do that, we can kind of just let them do what they're going to (laughs) do, whether they, maybe they'll choose to eat, maybe they won't choose to eat. Maybe they'll choose to eat more than we served and that's okay to offer them more. But again, we are helping them develop their own ability to self-regulate, which is such a lifelong gift. Mm -hmm. If you have a baby who is doing baby led weaning, so self-feeding, I imagine that parents get very concerned about choking. Yes. And I know a lot of babies gag when they're experimenting with solids, and sometimes that can be mistaken for choking. So can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. They're so very different. Gagging and choking are two very, very different events that happen, or you know, we hope choking doesn't happen. <laughs> Gagging is somewhat inevitable during the process of learning how to eat. Because if you think about it, chewing, breathing, swallowing, all of that, doing all of that at the same time is complicated. It's a process like any other. It's a skill that needs to be learned over time. And gagging, it's really a natural built-in safety mechanism 
that helps babies if they get a piece of food in their mouth and it, they're not quite ready to swallow it yet, it helps them bring it forward so that they can get ready to swallow it and be ready for that. But it can be really alarming, especially to a new parent to hear gagging or to witness it for the first time because it's really like it's noisy. Sometimes they'll open their mouths and cough and splutter or like stick their tongue out and, and it can seem like they're choking. But a gagging event is very noisy and you can hear air passing through. Very, very different from choking, which is a silent, serious event where a piece of food actually gets stuck in the airway, that occludes the airway so that no air can pass through. And a baby who's choking is going to look different from a baby who's gagging. They may, they're silent. They may grab at the throat. They may turn a different color. They may you know, seem very alarmed, but there's not going to be the sound that you hear and the air passing through with gagging. I think one of the best kept secrets, I wish it wasn't a secret. I keep trying to get the word out about gagging as best I can, but it's a good thing in a lot of ways. It's a really, really good thing because it's so protective of baby's airway. And during those early months, a lot of one of the biggest misconceptions I think about baby led weaning is when people say, well, I gave my baby finger foods and they were just gagging. So I, they were not, clearly not ready for the finger foods yet. And I would argue with that actually, because the gag reflex during those early months of baby led weaning, six months, seven months, eight months, it's very far forward in on the tongue. That's it. Here. So if a piece of food gets there, it's, there's going to be a lot more gagging mm -hmm. earlier on during infancy. But the funny thing is, the more that we can take advantage of that strong gag reflex early on, the more practice the baby's going to get with finger foods, the less likely they're going to have trouble with chewing and managing bites of food in the mouth later on. When the gag reflex shifts further back into the mouth, and becomes less protective of the airway. So in a lot of ways, it's really advantageous for a baby to get that practice with finger foods when that gag reflex is strong, because then as they age, they know what they're doing and they're more able to move a piece of food around in the mouth and then less likely to have a choking episode. Does that make yeah, sense? I don't know oh, if I yeah. explained it very well. <laughs> no, you did. That was great. And usually what I would say to parents is if you see gagging, that means that your, your baby's defense mechanisms are working. Yeah. And we would rather see the gagging than the choking. <laughs> totally. Now, you know, sometimes people say, well, you know, the gagging is it's excessive. It's happening at every single meal, or it's happening with a specific texture, or it's happening with a specific food. It can sort of start to work against you. There is a point at which it's too much. In other words, mm -hmm. if the baby is bothered, is starting to be bothered by the gagging, usually they just kind of gag and move on like nothing happened. <laughs> and it's, and the parents like, that yeah. was, what was that? And the baby's like, okay, what's next? Mm -hmm. um, so usually that's the case. And if that's the case, great. Like, you know, there's no harm done. It, the process of learning how to eat is happening. And that's great. If it's really starting to alarm the baby and what, what we don't want is for it to start to cause negative associations with food and feeding. Mm -hmm. So at that point, talk to your pediatrician. If you feel that, you know, I, I would advise a parent, talk to the pediatrician, get a sense from the pediatrician about whether maybe a referral for a feeding therapist would be helpful. Sometimes a feeding therapist, a speech language pathologist or an occupational therapist can really help with maybe there's a sensory issue, or maybe there's something that's driving some of that excessive gagging that they can help with. 
And the earlier that we intervene, the easier the whole process will be for the baby uh, as they move through infancy and learn how to eat. So, you know, I, I like to tell parents just like use your mom or dad intuition. If it, if it doesn't feel right, talk to your pediatrician because there's things that we can do. Yeah, I love that advice. One of the questions that I get asked a lot is if you start off with pureed foods, does it make it harder for them to eat table foods later on? Like if you started yeah. off with pureed and then you wanted to switch the baby led weaning. Yeah, I get that question a lot too. Actually, it's funny because baby led weaning is it's wonderful and it's really taken off and there's a lot of people that are interested in it. I think it's unfortunately swung in a lot of ways too far to the extreme in some circles where people think that if you're doing baby led weaning, that you can't do any purees because that you're going to confuse the baby or it's going to be more difficult for the baby, like you said, to do one or the other. And the funny thing is purees, they are not bad. They're not detrimental to the baby. There's no evidence that a combined approach of doing both is harmful in any way. And we eat purees, like we eat yogurt, we eat applesauce, we eat this texture of food into adulthood and beyond. So no, so there's no, there's no evidence to say that starting with purees and then moving to finger foods is going to be confusing. What we do want to avoid is if you're doing all finger foods, we don't want to not offer purees. A, a large, um, a lot of the, the speech language pathologists that I talk to that work in feeding therapy tell me that a large part of their caseload when they're uh, looking at their whole group of toddlers that we're that they're working with are toddlers who were sort of pure baby led weaning toddlers who got to or sorry babies who got to toddlerhood and were never given purees and then really struggle with that texture mm. in toddlerhood because it's different it's a different method of of moving food around in the mouth and creating a bolus and then swallowing it and so kind of the opposite goes as well we want sort of a goal for all babies somewhere between seven to nine or ten months it really depends on the baby they're all really each on their own unique developmental path so I don't want to say exact time but at some point between like let's say seven and twelve months we want all babies to start being able to eat finger foods so if you start with purees and then stay on purees and don't eventually start to offer those finger foods, then it can be difficult. It could be mm -hmm. difficult for the baby to start to understand what to do with different textures as they age. So we don't want to miss those windows. We do want to progress the baby, but no, there's no reason why if you want to start with purees, you can't end up with baby led weaning at some point along right. the journey. And I love that you encourage like a balanced approach of not one extreme or the other, but you can do both. I think yeah. that the same goes for like breastfeeding. A lot of people think it's all in or all out, but you can definitely combo feed. I think it's the culture we live yeah. in all in or all out. You're either completely dedicated or you're not. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it really, I think it ends up causing so much more stress, mm -hmm. like unnecessary yep. stress. I know. 100%. I totally agree. I really do agree. In your opinion, what are some of the best foods to start with? Oh gosh. I'm so I'm right now over on my Instagram. I'm doing, um, avocado week. Um, oh my I'm gosh, just doing my like, <laughs> yeah, I love, I love it as a first food. I mean, I love it. I just love it as a food. Mm -hmm. It has, it just has so many wonderful attributes, if you will, but it's a great first food because in terms of texture for a baby, when it's ripe, it's that great, like you can squish it easily between your thumb and forefinger. That's sort of the, the test 
where you can determine if it's a safe texture for the baby. And it's so rich in nutrients. It has so much fat. We Babies need fat for that brain development, for overall growth. And it has omega-3 fatty acids, which are important for brain development and so many vitamins and minerals, tons of fiber. Really interestingly, it actually has both kinds of fiber. It has soluble fiber and insoluble fiber. Yeah. And then it has the, the fat in it is so um, it's wonderful. And it actually helps the baby absorb some of the nutrients better. So some of those fat soluble vitamins like A and D. So, so I love it as a first food for so many different reasons. Um, and it can be easily served in a wedge or you could like roll it in a little bit of flax seeds or hemp hearts or something to give it some nice grip. So it's a little, it's very slippery. <laughs> Sometimes that can be frustrating, but someone sent me a video of a baby today. They had just mashed the avocado in a bowl and the baby was like scooping it up with hands. And what a phenomenal sensory experience for that baby. Mm -hmm. from so many different perspectives, from a developmental perspective with hands, experiencing that mashed texture. And it wasn't a uniform puree. It was like, there were some chunks and there was some, you know, mashed parts. I love that there's just so many different ways that, uh, that, that experience benefits the baby, both from a feeding and nutritional perspective. Mm -hmm. So avocado, I'm going on about avocado. Visually Um, appealing too. Oh, they're, they're beautiful. That if beautiful you catch color. it at the right time. <laughs> <laughs> true. True. This is again, a short window when, it, mm-hmm. <laughs> when it's perfect. But um, somebody was asking me today too, how do you keep it from turning brown? And just a little lemon juice can mm-hmm. actually help um, prevent that browning, which is nice. But I love banana also as a first food. Um, is a nice way. Both avocado and banana, you can offer them if you want to do it as a finger food. So just peel the banana halfway down so that it makes a little kind of like a handle. Mm -hmm. And then so that the top part is the banana flesh and let the baby kind of nibble on it that way. And it's easy for them to grip. Same thing with the avocado wedge. You could leave half half the peel on a wedge so they can grip it, which is Mm -hmm. nice. So those are great. Sweet potatoes, another really good one if it's like a roasted stick of sweet potato. And then again, all of those can be pureed or mashed and then just served on a, a, a spoon. Mm-hmm. So lots of different ways to do those, but those are three of my favorites. I love those foods. <laughs> Me too. I still do. <laughs> I know. I love my them all too. Um, sometimes parents will ask me about when, especially when they're cooking their own, when they're making their own baby food, sometimes it's concerned that cooking the food will cause it to lose nutrients. Ah, that's a great question. Yes and no. <laughs> um, it, it depends as most things in nutrition do. Cooking food can cause some of the nutrients to either leach out into the cooking water or to, um, to be diminished. But sometimes cooking food actually makes some of those nutrients more bioavailable, so easier to absorb. So it really depends on the food. Um, and it also depends on the cooking method. And in general, the shorter the cooking time and the less water is that's used, the more the nutrients are preserved. So that's why something like steaming is usually a better option than boiling because the nutrients will stay in the steamed food 
as opposed to in the boiled food, they'll like the water soluble vitamins will leach out into the water. But if you use the cooking water for some part of the recipe, you can preserve a lot of them that way. So right. you know what I like to like it's it's so tricky and there's a lot of chemistry to it at the sort of bottom line. Offer some foods raw, some foods cooked, use the shortest cooking method you can, and whenever you can, you know, steam as opposed to boil. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that's easy enough to remember too. It's not too overwhelming. Sometimes I think as parents, we overthink things and totally, I mean, I can, I remember being obsessed about the temperature. What's the perfect temperature in the house for a baby. And people would tell me, are you comfortable? Then your baby is most likely comfortable, but you know, in my head, I wanted that number. <laughs> totally. Totally. We really, it's hard. It's hard. And you, you're so concerned, especially as a new parent about making sure that you're doing everything right and making sure your baby is safe. But like you said, babies are very resilient um, and they're smarter than we give them credit for. Yeah, definitely. Um, Mesh feeders are very popular and they were popular too when I was having my kids. What was your, what's your opinion on them? Well, you know, so I've seen some folks get really creative with them. There was one mom, I thought this was really brilliant, brilliant because she had a lot of stress about offering a strip of steak to her infant. She had seen on my account that you can do that and sort of how to prepare it in an infant safe way and how advantageous that could be as the baby sucks those iron rich juices from the steak and can benefit from all that iron. And as we know, at around the six month mark, baby's iron stores are you know, often low. And so they need to start getting some of that iron from iron rich foods. But she was like, I just can't do it. I can't give my baby a strip of steak. So she stuck it in a mesh feeder and she gave it to her. <laughs> Which is smart. Smart, right? Like that was a very creative use mm-hmm. of a mesh feeder. Other folks, like if there's a baby who's teething, they may take a piece of frozen fruit that they may not necessarily feel comfortable handing over to the baby so that they can kind of get some relief from teething by sinking their gums into it and gnawing on it. And then also some flavor, you know, uh, in terms of practicing the process of chewing and mashing down a piece of food and moving it around in the mouth, a baby's not going to get that experience and that practice from using a mesh feeder. Mm -hmm. They may get some of the flavor maybe some of the nutrition, depending on what the food is that you stick in it. It really, I think in a lot of ways, ends up being more of a stress reliever for the parent. Um, Just knowing that if it's in the feeder, then they don't have to worry as much about choking. There are some risks to mesh feeders too. I I heard a, it's an anecdotal story, but I heard the actual threads of it got stuck in a tooth and yanked out the baby tooth. Oh oh no. (laughs) I know. I know. Certainly as with any, anything to do with feeding, always need to supervise, whether it's in a mesh feeder or there's a gag guard on the spoon, whatever we, all feeding does need to be supervised. Not that that would have maybe prevented the tooth from popping out, but I don't like anything that gives parents a false sense of security and feeling like there's no risk associated with it. Right. Yeah. I, I remember using it more as a teether than yeah. anything for my, like I would throw some frozen peas mostly in yeah. there and just let them like 
gnaw on it when they were teething. Yeah. It wasn't really yeah. how I fed them, quote unquote. Yeah, I think that's yeah. smart. They might, and they can get, they really is so uncomfortable with teething. I know, it's terrible. We got to help them out somehow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This has been great. I have one more question. And that is if you wanted parents to know one thing about starting solids, what would you say? Oh gosh, I think the main thing today, of course it changes, you know, as I wrestle with different challenges and with things that different clients are dealing with. But today I think we're so stressed and there's so much going on in the world. I would say, just try not to overthink it. Mm-hmm. Try not to give, get your head too wrapped up in certainly milligrams of anything or grams of anything or certain um, number of nutrients. Variety is key. Keep that in mind. And for the most part, babies can eat what we eat just with some pretty minor modifications to mm-hmm the texture, or, you know, if you tend to cook with a lot of salt, just pull out a portion for baby first before you add the salt. But, you know, they, they really can eat a lot more than we give them credit. That's, that might be the theme of today's podcast. Like they're, <laughs> they can do so much more than we give them credit for. Yeah. And that includes food. Yep. 100% yeah. agree. I love <laughs> it. Don't overthink it. Follow your instincts and yes. be fine. Yes. 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 For sure. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today about starting solids. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I love meeting someone who shares sort of my, um, my worldview. It's <laughs> nice to chat with you. Thank you so much, Melina, for talking to us today about starting solids. It's such an important topic. And if you want to connect with Melina, you can find her on Instagram at Healthy Mom, Healthy Kids. She offers courses on starting solids, recipes, guides. Definitely check out her Instagram. And thank you again, Melina, so much. This was so helpful. Thank you for joining us this week on the Baby Pro Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, ShellyTaftIBCLC.com, where you can check out our online parenting community, The Baby Bistro. You can also follow us on social media at ShellyTaftIBCLC on Instagram. If you love the show, please leave a rating on iTunes that we can continue to bring you amazing episodes. Thanks for listening and see you in two weeks.